0: Log Talk Radio
1: should be a message, and the message should be truth. So now, we give you
2: So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings
3: We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Because we're hips to the world. So we create black pearls. That everyone can wear. That everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on.
4: On and on. On and on.
5: We go on and on. On and on. Welcome to Africa on the Move. As your host, Brother Africa, it's always an honor and a privilege to come in your home this evening, where we can speak truth through power and to, provide with, to, and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. It's to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. We welcome you to another episode of Africa on the Move on the 11th day of April 2021. And our theme tonight is... The challenge of change. That's right, the challenge of change. We welcome you by calling in at three two three six seven nine O eight four one and share your views and your perspectives on the various issues and topics that may be discussed on today's program. So at this point in time, like always, you know how we get started with our party? We're going to first introduce to you our political panelists and analysts of today's program. Then we're going to go into a discussion on what's going on in your world and the community, followed by a discussion on today's theme, the challenge of change, where we deal with some very uh, important issues that are affecting your community. So at this point in time, let's get started with our party by first and foremost introducing our panelists
6: and analysts for today's program, Brother Haki, we welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Welcome,
5: Brother
6: Haki. Uh, Brother Africa, oh, thank for <coughs> thanks for Africa. having me. <coughs> thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi-Meshoki. Currently, I'm with African awareness. And, you know, my thing, of course, Brother Africa has always been about institution building. Now, one of the things, you know, I, I want to talk briefly about tonight, this whole notion in terms of um capitalism in the great Ponzi scheme. One of the things, unfortunately, people are not aware of is that there is a great deal of this Ponzi scheme going on in context of capitalism, and the results are deadly for, for many, many peoples. In the context of you know, reading through this, I think it become clear to people why there's an implicit threat in terms of how capitalism exists in America. So having said that, Brother Africa, I want you to, to listen to this. Now, the greatest Ponzi scheme ever devised is the evolution of finance capitalism and its modest beginnings. Originating during the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, the conference was inspired by the Atlantic Conference of 1941 that sought to lay a framework to prevent conflict among allied nations. The conference was also sought to lay out the spheres of influence of various states. Attainment of harmonious relationships, it was thought, could best be achieved by strengthening the ally, or the 44 countries at the Bretton Woods Conference economies by allocating which country controlled which country's resources. This was facilitated by the creation of the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. Under the auspices of the U.S. and the U.K., who will be the arbiters of international disputes, they were to oversee the international banks ensuring unified interest rates for the allied nations to ensure smooth trade between allied nations, while ensuring access to raw materials from nations not part of the 44 nations conference. Let us remember, only three African states were present at the conference and most, and keep in mind, um, all Central and South American nations were absent, as well as Caribbean nations, with the exception of Cuba, um, Mm -hmm. under the, of course, was under the Baptist regime. And keep in mind, only three African states were present in terms of the Bretton Woods uh, Conference. Now, this, this, this agreement of allied states did not survive, but the notion of absolute control of the economy permeated the thoughts of U.S. financial elites. In 1920, capitalists would raise funds not to invest in the U.S. economy, but hold on to funds until investment opportunities arose to enrich themselves, not invest in the country. Notions of self-enrichment became the template for U.S. economic doctrine. Under the banner, greed is good, investment schemes proliferated where fraudulent strategies sanctioned by Congress gained legitimacy while good governance took a back seat. In the 80s, investment schemes were engineered to use stocks with no value, along with stocks of some value, along with mortgages to create a financial product guaranteeing huge returns of profits. These profits were guaranteed because this investment scheme ensured mortgage payments would increase monthly or yearly. What came to be known as collateralized debt obligation in tandem with banks and brokers executed an infallible plan which not only deceived people but made it impossible to, to lodge complaints because no single entity owned the mortgage. The shenanigans did not end after being exposed. In order to provide cover for future fraudulent schemes, a complicitous Congress repealed the Glass-Steagall Act in 1990. 99 to be precise. Glass-Steagall erected a firewall between investment and commercial banks to prevent schemes previously alluded to. Congress went really and suffered in 2000 by authorizing the Commodities Future Modernization Act. The act specifically allows fraud using derivatives, derivatives for our purpose of simply gambling. Derivatives are financial instruments that derive the value not from producing or selling products, but from underlying assets like your home, property, or even interest rates. Derivatives are problematic because they are not only not un- unregulated, but most importantly, as an underlying feature, and as the evident interest rate rises, it decreases the value of derivatives, undermining the ability to sell derivatives. Lacking the ability to sell means the sellers of derivatives could incur losses too big to repay. Many speculate the notion, notion of value, the amount expected to be paid, of derivatives, which include stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, is 10 times the world's GDP and 10 times the world's wealth. Rather than engaging in speculation over potential trans, transaction costs over derivatives broadly, it may be helpful to understand the implicit threat of derivatives on the U.S. economy by looking at over-the-counter derivatives or trade between private individuals who forego financial institutions. According to the Bank of International Settlement, risk associated with derivative payments increased from $11.6 trillion to $15.5 trillion in 2020. So the amount of debt is actually growing. In the age of zombie corporations, highly indebted corporations, where of $3 billion of debt coming from? The reality is holders of large derivatives debt have two options. One, they can borrow money at low interest, putting them deeper in debt, or which means no longer a source of tax revenue for the government. Or two, they can appeal to the Federal Reserve Bank to buy their debt and place it on their balance sheets. the way, the U.S. economy becomes more indebted, unable to finance jobs, create affordable housing, or education for its citizens. There is no question: the financial manipulation of the economy always benefits the wealthy. Often, we talk about deindustrialization of the U.S. economy, not realizing that the closing of factories and shipping jobs abroad was the direct result a congress approval of policy that rewarded corporations for moving jobs abroad instead of rethinking this policy financial leaps have embraced the plan stating properties have never been better federal reserve chairperson jerome powell not only validated the notion rough creation for a small minority is sound economic policy within the first three months of, of, as chairperson he purchased three trillion dollars in assets housing land and mortgages the result of the fed purchases was to inflict costs or the prices for these or these assets, for the wealthy. Now, now, the disparity between the have and have-nots as a consequence continues to skyrocket. Now, according to Chris Hedges, there are 17 global financial conglomerates, which manages $15 trillion, or more than half of the world's GDP, which is 1% led by 36 millionaires and 2,400 billionaires control half of the world's wealth, leaving only 4.5% of 80% or 80% of of the world's uh, wealth in the hands of of the poor people. The point here is not to solely blame power for the abysmal state of economic affairs, but to point out policies like his have long existed. Institutions like the University of Chicago School of Economics have been at the forefront of validating economic policy that treats the masses as superfluous cattle, lacking any real value except to be slaughtered. Now, unfortunately, this sentiment has real life implications in that finance capitalism does not need labor. Wealth can now be acquired by investments only. Increasingly, automation is displacing workers, and uh, expense of caring or educating citizens lessens the wealthiest ability of access to money. Surely, with angry capitalists uh, who will see expenditures on the unemployed, the Ill- ill-educated, or others as a waste of funds. For capitalists who view this without, for for capitalists who view those without capital as as expendable, the question with them is what to do with citizens who serve no purpose. Perhaps. A, Perhaps they can justify the needless assassination of the masses, specifically Africans by the police. Or maybe how about prison expansion? Or how about uh, exposure to environmental contaminants guaranteed to reduce life expectancy? Whatever the strategy they employ, using the system will not be totally effective. What, now, what do you imagine would be their response when they realize eliminating a large number of citizens is not achievable fast enough? What do you think would be their next move? And I'll simply say, close with this, Brother Africa. The thing is that we have to understand that implicitly, when we talk about the way the system is structured, it's structured to, to reward the wealthy at the expense of all others. In the process of providing for the wealth uh, or making it possible for wealthy people to become even more wealthy, it means that you have a growing number of people who don't have access to any wealth. The problem for capital has always been one of accumulation. If you don't have any, any means I which, in terms of participating in this economy, in other words, if there's no way for you to provide, make it possible for other for wealthy people to become wealthy, then you have no real use. And so for the capitalist, the question becomes, since you have no real use, you have no real value, what do you do with all of these people you don't have need for? And so the question is, when you look at history in terms of the kind of atrocities that took in place historically in terms of, you know, uh, when we talk about Nazi Germany and so forth, then we were very, clear that uh, the pressure to actually, uh, in turn, large number of people become more and more prominent. And so the thing as a, as, a, as a press nationality we would be concerned about, that we understand that when we see things like, um, you know, uh, interest rate schemes, which ensures that the wealthy have access to tons and tons of money, even though the economy itself is declining, then we got to understand fundamentally that not only are they uh, eliminating large and large increasing number of people from the economy, but actually they put into place a scenario in which to ensure the economy uh, deconstructs or to ensure the economy falls. And so the thing that we have to understand is that when the economy falls, as it continues to fall, they're not going to blame each other. They're going to blame poor people. They're going to blame working people. They're going to blame the African community. So having to understand that it's a crucial in terms of organization, institutions, and in being actually seriously thinking about this stuff and, and not uh, pretending like it doesn't exist. Because we don't have that luxury of pretending like everything is fine, that if we just – or uh, be pragmatic that somehow you know everything's going to be all right. History shows it simply doesn't work that way. And so one of the things is very very clear when we look at the the the, the, the deconstruction of the capitalist system. And we got to be very very clear that the implications for us is very very severe. And we have to understand the potential in terms of you know the potential for you know uh, uh, great um, uh, potential for uh, uh, destruction of, of, of a large number of African peoples is, is very very uh, possible. So I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Parky. Next we can go to
5: Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa
7: on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you Brother Africa. And thank greetings you. to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race secure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that mouth, mouthy tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And Lord, we know we don't, we don't, we don't reverse we don't correct verdicts, brother. Africa. I'm, I'm my pro-choice, mind. and I vote. And I, I want to thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show.
5: Okay. Brother Moses, thank you for being on the show. It's always an honor. To our listening audience, this is Africa the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a ruptured cultural break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. And you can participate by calling in at 323-679-0841. We want to know what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa On the move.
1: Africa, the Yokana, the Mekongo, the Kokotunga, the Bokina, the wow. oh. Soubara, oh. the oh. Bokoko, oh. the Patriotism, the Father, 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 comme non, nous disons non à la guerre, à la haine, au rapisme, au tribalisme,
8: pour le développement
1: de notre continent, Afrique, le, France. 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 le Congo, c'est enfin, de dans l'unité, dans l'amour, la volonté, le cœur,
8: L'amour, la volonté et le sacrifice pour le changement du Congo. Congolores pour un Congo nouveau, Madame Patricia Lokwa, servant. Banaya Congo, Tolilana, Tosangana.
4: Africa, TNT, we are strong.
1: We ti, strong. good girl, i a I'm going to go to to go go to mama
4: Thank you.
5: man and woman out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of the African. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Today's date is the 11th day of April, 2021. Our theme is the challenge of change. Before we discuss our theme, right now we move to our segment of what's going on in your world and the community. At this time, we we'll are bring in Brother Hackey. To share with us, brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community?
6: Well, recently, um, recently um, recently, Susan Rice made a very interesting. um, uh, Well, she did a very interesting thing. Uh, Of course, Susan Rice is the White House Domestic Policy, uh, member. Uh, She actually burned sage in her office, and interesting enough, this previously occupied by. Stephen Stephen Miller. Now, of course, Stephen Miller has a long history in terms of his racism, you know, but what is interesting in terms of, uh, you know, burning of sage, it suggests that, in fact, that our problems problems that we're confronted with in society can simply be erased simply by the burning of sage. In other words, this notion that somehow the problems that we have of, of a metaphysical nature as opposed to systemic nature I find it very, very interesting. Because it seems to me that if you want to genuinely want to change the direction of humanity, if you want to make things more positive, then it seems to me then you have to address the question in terms of institutions. So institutions, by, by the virtue of how they operate, uh, has a very intimate impact in terms of, you know, how we think, uh, what we think, uh, you know, how we act, how we feel, how we behave, so forth and so on. So if we're sincere in terms of bringing about a more positive existence for humanity, then we have to look at the institutions. It seems to me, by simply saying that the spirits are somehow or intimating that somehow the spirits are the fault or the problem that humanity is is confronted with, I find it ironic. Because one of the things that you know, if while she may burn her her sage in her office, you know, to eliminate the negativity associated with Stephen Miller, what about the negativity associated with the uh, with the with the with the, uh, the the White House staff in its entirety? How about them? Are they also infected with this, quote-unquote, negative spirit in terms of uh, uh, manifesting itself in terms of kind of policies that, uh, that, uh, that they, they, they push? Uh, probably not. Even if they were, the problem is that in terms of resolving a problem, uh, it's very difficult in terms of resolving a problem that is not seen. I mean, you know, because number one, it calls for a great deal of uh, perception. And, of course, there is no unified perception. Everybody has perception, and the perception is often different. Even if, in fact, there's such thing as a, a, a evil entity impacting people's behavior, then we got we got we got to agree that in terms of you know formulating some strategy in terms of combating that would be very very difficult, if not impossible. So clearly, you know, this notion in terms of burning sage to resolve the the, the, the uh, of our problems of, of uh, humanity faces clearly it seems to me is very self-serving, and I think that's one of the things when we when we think about advancing the, the the Christian church. And we thank the Christian fundamentalists in terms of their, their perceptions. It is very interesting that these, these same people who who allege to love the creator or love creation are the same people who are on the forefront in terms of pushing all kinds of racial and genders. And so you begin to wonder so so, so if, if, if their behavior is, is 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 guided by faith, then you got to then, then somehow this whole question in terms of, you know, um the authenticity of uh of, 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 of evil spirits uh, begs the question because clearly you can't have one people on one hand who profess you know their love of, of love of creation and on the other hand are guided by some, some mystical force in terms of making them do wrong it seems to me that their policy that direct, directly uh, represents their kind of views and views in life well fundamentalists tend to be very very conservative uh, they tend to be very very racist they tend to not want things changed and so in that context, I think their behavior is, is, is indicative of that kind of mindset. I don't think it has anything to do in terms of evil spirits, you know, um, shaping, shaping their perception or shaping the way they behave or the kind of things that they do or the, or the positions that they take. So clearly uh, Susan Ryan's position in terms of Bernie Sage in, in, in Stephen Miller's office, I find it ironic that if you're going to say, if you're going to allude to the fact that there's a great deal of injustice, a great deal of negativity in the society, and I suggest that you look at the U.S. government in terms, of, in terms of in terms of its capitalist policies, in terms of all all that means, in terms of, of, of you know uh, projecting you know all kinds of negativity. So clearly, I thought it was a very, very interesting article, and for me, for someone who's uh, you know in in in, in, in capital, someone who's in high up there in office. Or you to advocate those kinds of things i just wonder you know just what you know, what how how capable are you in terms of actually bringing about some positive change that's just so for needed in society so clearly you know this notion that uh, you know that uh, somehow that you know that she can chase the spirits away i always you know to me it's sort of funny because when you think about it uh you know if in fact if if, if the are there, after you bring the sage out and you bring the sage What's stop the stop of spirits from leaving, the evil spirits from leaving and then coming back? So it seems to me that this notion turns of the stage on its face is sort of funny. And so I, I think, unfortunately, that a lot of people who believe, you know, uh, that it's easier to believe that if we just um, believe things, uh, that, going to, that the part good is going to come to fruition. But it seems to me if you're going to achieve that which is good or positive, then you have to work for it. And one of the things you first and foremost have to do, you have to do with these institutions which are facilitator. Of all kind of negativity and evil so it seems to me that the uh, student need to uh, rethink uh, this notion in terms of this burden of sage but anyway that's just my view and i close with that
5: thank you brother Haki. we go brother moses brother moses what's going on in your world and the community
7: thank you thank you brother africa i think you, you know Asuka. all eyes have been on the trial of the century more or less um uh, with this Floyd trial. Um, um, I think you know the the police chief and the doctors, the coroner, and everybody that testified have shown that this this, for lack of a word, rather word, uh, pig, who usually be found masquerading as a victim of an unprovoked attack. Um, anyway, he killed this brother and. Uh, and the evidence is showing and uh and without a reason doubt in my mind that that uh that he should be convicted and uh so it should be interesting to see what what happens um in terms of the justice system and it's just us and uh anyway we're just hoping that uh the jury will see things uh clearly the 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 uh prosecution wraps up his case this week and I'm sure they'll they'll be uh spinning and and uh insinuating and and uh and all sorts of lies perpetuated to to try to get this this cop off. Um I think, you know, uh meanwhile the the Pence and Trump and all of them are trying to re re uh organize themselves, uh in terms of, in terms of the republican party and and uh this group that pence is is trying to uh spin off um some kind of conservative group and uh, but anyway we gotta st- continue the united front against fascism uh, uh and this has been you know uh an interesting week i'll leave it right there thank you.
5: I must agree with you, Brother Moses, this has been an interesting week. Talking about the trial I did with um, George Floyd, I'd like to have both of y'all respond to this particular phenomenon. You know, one of the things I was told that when you go to law school, they tell you this whole thing about going on a presenting trial case and not about arriving at the truth. It's about the interpretation and painting the picture of the truth whether it the truth or not, that's it's it's not the issue. The real issue is how can you convince the people of something that you want to convince them of, even if it's not the truth. Now, I'm saying that because I thought it was really interesting. One day I looked at the news when they were talking about the trial, and I believe this was one of the, was a defense attorney. He was allowed to project um, uh, a film on George Floyd speaking while they were kneeling on his neck and saying as if he take drugs. And then he had, he had one of the people who was on, on the witness stand to testify and sort of led him to saying, yes, if you take drugs, kid can contribute to yourself. But he may look like George Floyd was saying he took drugs. And then five minutes later, when the prosecutor came up, what he did was he showed a longer version of that film, in which it showed that... George Floyd was responding to a question that the police was asking him about drugs, but the way they cut it up, it made it look like, you know, he was saying that he, um, he, he, take drugs. And I just thought that would really interesting in terms, again, how they even allow, uh, the defense to allow them to use such a presentation, a deception of the truth. Now, if, if, the lawyer was not keen enough to recognize that this was not the whole part of the clipping, or that particular um, clipping that was shown by George Floyd, saying he just used drugs the way he it. that you will be misled that you know, this is what he said, this is what it was. So I just thought, again, here you're talking about the methodology of playing games and tricks of deceiving people in terms of the interpretation of the truth. What you think talking about that particular practice, Brother Hackey,
6: well, Brother Africa, we you know, un- unfortunately, you're, you're right. You're, you're, this is a, this is, we talk, we talk about justice in, you know, in America as an adversarial system. It's not about the truth. It's not about even getting at the truth. It's about being able to um, um, persuade uh, jurors, you know, uh, uh, of some event that took place, that some event that really didn't take place. And so, therefore, you know, by painting, you know, George Floyd somehow, you know, contribute to his own death possibly it it, it, it will um, it would uh, it would resonate uh, with uh, some uh, some of those jurors who were looking for an excuse to to vindicate or defend the cops and that is that's one of the concerns I have but in terms of the strategies um, you know that uh, the defense um, utilized, it seems to me that you know when you look at the uh, evidence in its entirety it's very clear you know from the medical the medical examiners to to the doctors that examine them you know um, to the paramedics, it's very very clear, you know, that uh, his death has nothing to do in terms of you know um, substance abuse. Uh, but but it doesn't it really doesn't matter because the defense job is to get his get his get his um, get his uh, client off. And so therefore, if he can appeal to the uh, jurors' prejudices in terms of respect in terms of cops, then uh, he can then he can get this guy acquitted. Uh, so I'm not surprised that this kind of strategy would be utilized. But you know the sad thing, brother Africa. Is that if let's say if, if, if they had a a, um, a a relatively young prosecutor who was prosecuting a case, possibly that could have, that could have slid right on by. I mean, it's good that they had seasoned prosecutors, and so therefore, when the defense attempted, you know, to deceive the, the jurors with their, that uh, that uh, that uh, edited portion of, of the video, uh, the uh, prosecutors realized that that wasn't the whole truth, and so in understanding that short. People that be video in entirety can get a more accurate portrayal in terms of what actually transpired. Uh, but one thing that we we, we can't be surprised about, Africa, like you say, because of the adversarial and it's all about winning. It, the truth is really the truth is a casualty. I mean, it, you know, it's um, it, it's it's really it really has no no relevance in terms of in terms of trials, which is why so many you have so many poor people who are, who are innocent who are housed in these prisons today simply because there's an adversarial system that has nothing to do in terms of, uh, pursuit of pursuit of the truth. So clearly I'm not surprised that the prosecutor do that. I think I get a sense that uh, he understands given information that is coming out uh, um, that uh, is, is very difficult to create a defense for this, for this guy, so therefore he's grasping the straws. Brother Moses, your take on that particular
5: technique?
7: Yeah, this is, you know, uh, the, the, prosec- you know, the prosecutor and, and the defense are, are you know, in adversarial, adversarial positions, and uh, positions obviously behind. the defense is going to use any means at its disposal to try to get get their client off. And uh, this is the American justice system, and uh, the, the collateral damage is truth. And uh, and uh, so, you know, if they can spin it, and you know, they will spin it, uh, um, try to make it look, Like it's something that's not. And, um, you know, even when they're caught red-handed, you know, it reminded me of Shaggy, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Uh, uh, So, you know, we we just got to stay vigilant and stay in the streets ultimately. uh, um, And um, hopefully justice will be served. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Talking about it wasn't me, it wasn't me. I would say yes, it was. Yes, it was. This, recently, this week, this past week, that was a some would say a, a historical event that took place at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where for the first time they they selected a African basketball head coach to take over the position of Roy Williams, the former coach who just uh, retired. So he'll be the first ex-player, first African coach to coach the university in North Carolina in Chapel Hill, in Chapel Hill North Carolina. Now, given the present climate or the rise of white supremacy, the prison rise of racism, understanding the prison black lives movement going on, et cetera, et cetera, I find this to be a real interesting statement that this particular African coach made who was just elected to be the head coach of the University of North Carolina. And I would like to get your response to this statement. I think it's probably the sucker historical statement going can go down history. When people read about interesting statements, they're going to be one of them. You know, we know that one of the main ones that took place recently was by, um my brother when he tried to beat his brains out in California. Um, out the car, and he made the statement, um, why can't we all get along? And that became real popular. Now, here's another one of these statements I would like for you all to be respond to. Maybe what was going on in Hubert Davis' mind, that's the new coach, African coach, that they're going to be coaching the basketball team for the University of North Carolina. He was doing a press conference, and all of a sudden, as part of his press conference, message. He just made a statement, which is European, white being there with him. He just made a statement, I'm proud that my wife is white. Now, repeat that. I'm proud that my wife is white. Something very odd and strange about the statement. Many people are talking about that statement and what it really means psychologically, sociologically. You know, what's the implications, of how, he, how he may perceive his own people, how African women may have been slighted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to my panelists today, if someone who is who is from the African family make a persistent statement where it's clear to everybody publicly that the young lady that you are married is a European lady,
8: but you make the statement
5: that I'm that I'm proud that my wife is white. What is the significance of that? Why would he say something, of upset, brother Haki? What you read into that?
6: <laughs> well, you know, first of all, brother Africa, I'm not I'm not surprised. Uh, anybody know the history of Hubert Davis? No, he's he's a uh, you know he's a uh, he's the epitome of of an of African with a slave mentality. So no one should be surprised. But I think, his motivation, I think his motivation was that he, he wanted to convey, you know, that, one, that, that he's an American, uh, that, two, uh, that he's going to enforce the uh, so-called rules and policies of the, of, of the university and that he's going to be uh, uh, particularly hard on those who transgress. In particular, we talk about, you know, African athletes, you know, who own on the basketball squad. I think this notion, in terms of you know pointing out you know her her, her ethnicity, I think it was really very, very interesting. In that you know uh, one of the things that is, is is fine to acknowledge you're proud of proud of your wife. I mean that's fine, but to specifically say my white wife, and it has some it has some it has some political connotations. So I think to a large extent, you know, I, I think it's, it's this is William saying, saying that uh, you know I'm 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 equal. You don't I mean? You know that I'm truly, you know, I'm, I'm truly American. And uh, and so, therefore, to 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 underscore just how American I am, my wife is white. So I think that has some of the motivation. I think also the, real, the fact that he realizes that, in fact, that his appointment as the head basketball p- uh, coach at University of North Carolina, I'm sure he had jumped in many hoops in terms of getting that job. I mean, uh, North, University of North Carolina is a very conservative university. It's a very conservative institution. And so, therefore, I think uh, he's sort of re- uh, reassuring uh, the uh, uh, the, the the people in that the uh, in that uh, academic, academic, uh, athletic program in fact it made the right choice that he's a good old boy you know that uh, you know that nothing's going to change as business as usual and uh, don't don't worry whatever you do I'm I'm I'm, with you, I'm behind you lock stop and barrel so I think to a large extent that uh, you know it speaks to you know this is his mindset you know the the, the, the point is that to even raise the issue in terms of ethnicity which is neither here or there uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, I, I can certainly understand why they would be insulted by such a thing. I think one of the things, you know, is that it's as though he's saying, well, here's a platform, you know, um, not because she's my wife, but because she's a white woman. And so, therefore, you know, she's deserving of a platform. So I certainly can see people being insulted, you know, by his words. But at the beginning, Brother Africa, anybody who knows the history of Hubert Davis understands that, you know, he has a long history in terms of um, – uh Saying things that are ill advised, or things that are not particularly intelligent, or things that are like, uh culturally uh, appropriate. So nobody should be surprised that he would say something like that. Uh, it's indicative uh, of who he is. Brother
5: Moses, what you take? What you
7: take of that statement? Yeah, I think Brother Haki has Brother summed, Hakea Hakea summed it up, rather, summed up rather thoroughly, up. Rather, rather thoroughly and comprehensively. On this, you know, this is um uh, Uncle Tom more or less, and um, Thomas uh uh he is trying to show that he's uh 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 acceptable or he's no threat to the to the uh the power structure uh and you know he's proud of of, of being uh basically part of the power structure and uh you know i think that's that's you know that's his mentality far as i can tell uh I don't know that I haven't followed his career, uh, but, you know, I don't know why he would come out of his mouth other other than with those kind of motivations.
5: You know, panelists, could one argue that this is what we're talking about as an example of how institutionalized racism has had had and continue to have an impact on the thinking of our people, Brother High
8: Yes. Yes. You a, question by by
5: the Africa?
8: Africa? You a question by the
5: African? Yes, a question. go ahead. You a question? What was the question? Now, the question is, can one make a conclusion of 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 saying or justify? This is why this whole question, is we need to understand the importance of institutionalized racism, because it still manifests itself today. It doesn't just go away. It lingers it's transferring from generation to generations, and we can see it still exists today by that kind of reaction from Huey Davis. Was he a victim of that process?
6: No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it is, it is a big problem, and I think one of the things is that a lot of times, when you start talking about socialization, people really don't understand the concept. I think for a lot of people it's just too vague, and they really don't, don't really get it. And you try to get people to understand that, you know, given the human brain in terms of how it functions, you know, Whatever it's exposed to is going to manifest itself on on some level. So therefore, growing up in a society which tells you that everything is white, everything white is good, the white is right, that white is exceptional, white is this, white is that, then you just have a tendency to internalize that simply because the brain can't help but to, to to take it in. And so therefore, that so that kind of socialization growing up, unless you have a community or parents uh, to counter, you know, that conditioning, then you tend to believe on a subconscious level, without even thinking about it. That in fact, that white folks are in fact uh, better. White folks are great. White folks are exceptional. White folks are what we should aspire to be. And so, given that, and so given that mindset, I think he he does he does incorporate that kind of that that the kind of mindset. And so, therefore, we had a, we, so he's a living example in terms of when we talk about in terms of importance of institutions or organizations in terms of combating this, this you know this mindset that people can look at he would be an example in terms of what, we, what we're trying to say when we say the importance of organizations and institutions. Because if we don't teach our children, we don't have the institutions to make sure our children get the message, you know, in terms of who they are and their capabilities, then what's going to happen in society effectively is going to teach them that based upon who they are, their skin color, uh, that, they, that they're no one. That In fact, that uh, the system pretty much is going to define who they are as a human being uh, based upon their skin color. So if the kid doesn't know any better, if it's all he's supposed to, a virtue of television or what he hears at school and so forth and so on, then the kid comes to conclude that what he's hearing and what he's seen on television is correct. And so therefore, so when a kid have a negative attitude in terms of negative self-perception in terms of who he or she is as an African person, then you can understand precisely why. So we can't be surprised someone like Hubert David comes along and says very inane, ridiculous kinds of things simply because he sort of epitomizes you know, this, 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 this socialization, this negative socialization uh, that so badly impacts our people. So so clearly he is an example, and so maybe with, with that example, people can begin to see clearly for themselves. When we talk about important institutions, we begin to understand that if we don't eradicate that, that mentality, then it's going to, as you say, Brother Africa, it's going to proliferate. It's going to go from generation, generation to generation, which means that our situation will never improve in society because we're going to essentially act as slaves. And so in order to be free, we, to, we, we can't think as slaves. We have to think as independent men and women.
5: And brother Moses, your response to so you see him as being a victim of being victimized by institutionalization of race
7: uh, of racism. Well, first of all, we we're, we're all all human beings are just matter that thinks, and what we think is is determined by our conditions and conditioning, and you know, so there's nothing unique or sacred about about um, skin color or 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 any. Uh, human characteristic uh basically you know we are product condition and conditioning and uh, and we can what we think can be accounted for basically in that process and um, that's dialectical and historical materialism and so you know this he's uh he's he's as much a victim as, as 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 anyone uh in terms of uh he's just a product of society uh he's been to schools he's been to Universities played basketball he's, he's he but he's always been in class society and in in a white supremacist society and um uh, so that permeates everything that's going on uh white minority rule uh dictating um the the values of society and so you know we unless we struggle uh consciously against that negative condition and conditioning and and read and study and uh and take to heart um the lessons of history we cannot change and that's the only thing that can change us is uh experience uh directly and indirectly uh of another possibility and so we have to recognize there is another possibility, and, and study, 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 and change, and, and learn from history, learn from our experiences, and uh, that way we can overcome. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Brother Moses, for your response, and at this point in time, what we're going to do, we're going to make a little quick change to, we're going back down to memory lane, we're going to listen to some clippings of the past. Nkrumah, Kuman was addressing this face of Africa. What's going on with Africa? We're gonna to listen to that, and when we come back, we'd we'll like to get your response. So let's go back down memory lane. Kwame
1: Nkrumah. Africa
8: wants freedom. Africa must be free. Oracle's indicated that Kwame Nkrumah was a devil. Mr. President, Mr. President, there is a coup. I've never
3: seen such an explosion of joy.
6: Welcome to the Great African Leadership Series, where we feature great inspirational speeches and quotes from African leaders.
8: Fellow Freedom Fighters, comrades and friends, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Accra and to this conference of African Freedom Fighters and supporters of the growing movement for Africa's liberation and unity. It is good for our cause to have a periodic meeting of this kind to examine our position in the great struggle to rid Africa completely and forever of imperialism and its handmaidens, colonialism and neo-colonialism. <laughs> Africa is rich and not poor. As the great wealth that has been taken out of our continent over five centuries of despoliation and extortion, very well proved. Africa has immense actual and potential wealth gold, diamond, copper, manganese, bauxite, iron ore, uranium, asbestos, chrome, cobalt, a host of other minerals. our essential cultural produce have all been drained away by colonial imperialism. Africa is far from being poor. It is Africans who are poor, not Africans. And they are poor because of the uncounted profit that has been made out of the exploitation of their labor and their lands. If we are being baited to enter a European community, we must have something that community needs and needs badly when it pretends to offer a bonus by way of aid. When Greeks come bearing Greeks, should we not look them well in the mouth if i may mix my metaphor but i'm sure you get my meaning i raise this point so that it will stay in your minds when you may be tempted by the seductive promises of new colonialism to forget the real character of colonialist imperialism and be persuaded away from your own true interests and those of Africa. For today we must each see ourselves as part of Africa in order that we may face colonialist imperialism and its new form new colonialism on a continent wide front. For unity must be the keynote of our actions. Our enemies are many and they stand ready to pounce upon and exploit our very weakness. They tell us that this particular person or that particular country has greater or more favorable potentialities than the other. They do not tell us that we should unite, that we are all as good as we are able to make ourselves once we are free. Remember, always, that you have four stages to make. First, the attainment of freedom and independence. Secondly, the consolidation of that freedom and independence. Thirdly, the creation of unity and community between the free African states. Fourth, the economic and social reconstruction of Africa. This requires some plain speaking. And for the sake of Africa, let us speak plainly. As I say, our greatest danger stems from disunity, and the inability to see that the realization of our hopes and our aspirations, the realization of our objective of total African independence, and of our future progress and prosperity is in bound up with the necessity to unify our policy and actions in connection with the continuous struggle for independence and the greater tax of economic and social reconstruction beyond it. We must therefore face the issue of African unity now, for only unity will make the artificial boundaries and regional demarcations imposed by colonialism obsolete and superfluous. African unity will thus provide an effective remedy for border disputes, and internecine troubles. In a United Africa, there could be no frontier claims between Ethiopia and Somalia, or between Zanzibar and Kenya, Guinea or Liberia, or between Ghana, Togoland, and the Ivory Coast.
4: Because,
8: <laughs> because you, we would regard ourselves as one great continental family of nations. Some of the leaders, it must be confessed, do not see the struggle of their brother Africans as part of their own struggle. Even if they did, they would not be free to express their solidarity. These rifts are consciously created by the imperialists between the Africans, where they can sit back and watch with sly satisfaction as well as contempt for those who fail to see how they are being used against Africa's best interests. Regrettably, regrettably. Those states include some who were among the freedom fighters of yesterday and who haven't won their independence, are willing to drop it for some token aid and thereby deny to those still struggling for freedom even their moral support. Here is a phenomenon against which all African freedom fighters must be on their guard and with this to the utmost. Even though I appreciate the difficulties facing us, I must admit, I find it strange to watch some of us returning willingly to the colonialist fold. This time, they don't even have to They don't even have the excuse of being forced to subject themselves to foreign domination. It makes one wonder why so much effort and sacrifice and so many lives were given up to the achievement of independence in the first place if it can only be so quickly and easily surrendered. We must begin to build immediately our own continental common market. For it is easy for every, anyone who studies the Common Market Organization closely to realize, to realize that the Common Market is aimed at harnessing the African countries to justify the profit loss of the imperialist bluff and to prevent us from following an independent neutralist policy. It is easy. You see that the imperialists and the colonialists are determined to retain the African countries in the position of suppliers of cheap raw materials. If we do not resist this threat, and if we throw in our lot with the common market, we shall doom the economy of Africa to a state of perpetual subjection to the economy of Western Europe. This will, of course, hinder the industrialization of our young African states. It is impossible to think of economic development and national independence without possessing an unfettered capacity for maintaining a strong industrial power. The activities of the common market are therefore fraught with dangerous political and economic consequences for the independent African states. They organization constitute an attempt to replace the old system of colonial exploitation by a new system of collective colonialism which will be stronger and more dangerous than the old evils we are striving to liquidate from our continent. This is another reason why we should come together in a unified African economic plan which Operating on a continental scale can make a solid attack on the imperialist domination in Africa. We should, without delay, aim at the creation of a joint African military command. There is little wisdom in our present separate effort to build up and maintain defense forces, which in any case would be ineffective in a major world conflict. if we examine this problem realistically, you would ask, which single African state could protect itself against an imperialist aggressor? And how much more difficult this would be when some states are allowing the imperialists to maintain bases on their territories? I have already referred to the military forces with South Africa is reason and the danger it poses for the new African state and the struggle of those still in chains. Only our unity can provide us with anything like adequate protection. Those problems can best be met within a unified Africa. And it should be possible in the higher reaches of our endeavor to devise a constitutional structure which will secure, which will secure the objectives I have outlined, and yet preserve the sovereignty of each of the countries joining the Union. Countries within the Union will naturally maintain their own constitutions, continue to use their own national emblems and national anthems and other symbols and periphery of sovereignty. Regional associations and territorial groupings can only be other forms of organisation unless they are conceived within the framework of a continental union. There are existing models which, can modify, which we can modify or adapt to our pattern. The United States of America, the Soviet Union, India and China have proved the efficacy of unions and large like stretches of land and population. <laughs> Long live African freedom fighters. Long live.
3: must prepare and learn how to care for soon we'll be there where our lives won't be in danger and when the light is clear oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey yeah and made my journey yeah. yeah 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 made it through my journey
4: made
3: it through my journey hello
4: Reno
3: a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia a scar across the face of the earth Palerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Palerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Palerino is the place where death came to dwell. where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor waiting for someone to die. Pelerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn, and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. Know the chains in not break. Cannot not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the palerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. And made it through my journey. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
5: from damn memory lane this is africa on the moon before we went down memory lane uh, we listened to a presentation of lessons we should learn from history from our forefathers and kumos was talking about what it would take for africa and african people to get their liberation independence and he understood something that was very important and panelists i'd like for y'all to respond to this question Was he not incorrect when he stated that there will not be one African country that would be capable of fighting a Western nation independently and defeating them? We need to have a collective, organized army going one way and fighting for one interest, and that's the total defense of the continent of Africa. And does that? Particularly phenomenal applied today, brother Haki, is that the need for a total, unified continental army that would defend the integrity and the interests of Africa and African people. Brother Africa, brother Africa,
6: there, there is there is no question. There is no question. Um, uh, the uh, need of the, a unified uh, African army is uh, more of a need today than it ever was. When we look at Western intervention, um, particularly uh, the U.S. and France, and you know, on, on the continent of Africa, uh, clearly they're not there because they give a damn about Africa or African people. They're there to, to gain a foothold. One, to ensure chi- ensure the Chinese doesn't get a foothold in terms of the uh, infrastructure development of Africa, and secondly, to make sure that you know, once there, uh, you know, that that ensures their own survival in terms of being a footprint, you know, on that continent. And so, therefore, understanding that, we, we understand that, you know, one of the things that's not going to happen, that once they're there, they're not going to leave. They're not going to leave without a fight. They're not going to leave simply because it's the right thing to do. So, clearly, without an organized army to fight, then there's no way to, to free yourself. Uh, you know, but one of the things about Africa also, uh, you know, um, you know, um, this question in terms of, you know, and unify Africa is, is key. Uh, he's right. We Africans have to stop seeing themselves in terms of tribes and stop seeing themselves as a people. And until it happens, uh, the kind of unity that we need in terms of actually being able to uh, develop the continent uh, remains uh, difficult to achieve. And so therefore, you know, this, this notion in terms of, you know, this, 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 this tribal thing, you know, I find it very interesting because why we practice, a lot of us practice tribalism on the continent, we don't seem to be tribal when it comes to Western nations. When it comes to Western nation, we embrace uh, Western nations. And the problem is that, you know, unfortunately, you know, when we talk about the miseducation of Africans, you know, in the Western, Western, in Western world, it's also the problem in terms of miseducating Africans on the continent. And so, therefore, where they see embracing the West as somehow an economic opportunity, they fail to grasp or so to, so to see that you know, their, their embracing of the West uh, leads to their own recolonization. And so we have that, that that fundamental contradiction when it comes to when it comes to the continent. Uh then superimposed upon that by the african you a situation where you got different Western nations controlled in different parts, you know, of, of uh, Africa. So in the West Africa you got the French, in the East you got the British, and the central and central you got the southern central and southern part, you got the British and the Germans. In the northern part, of course again, you got the French. Uh, and um, so you got this, 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 so you got this hard of, you know of Western nations, nations who operate on a single strategy, which is the domination of Africa and its resources. But yet we have uh, African leaders who have no no concept in terms of you know working with each other in terms of overcoming you know these obstacles. So clearly it's a real dile- dilemma in terms of you know uh, you know which way forward for Africa, and. Uh, and, and when, when you say, when you talk about the fact that you know, can um, okay, one, one nation <laughs> defeat the Western States? You know, one of the things is that um, I, sadly, most African leaders are not even talking about, even, even talking about um, colonialism at all. So it never get to the question in terms of actually being able to defend yourself. They're not even they're, they're comfortable in terms of colonialism. They don't have a problem with that. There's only one person to my knowledge on the continent, at least uh, publicly. Uh, who's actually standing up and fighting for the continent, and that's a professor, Professor Lumumba out of Kenya. He's the only African on the whole continent I know of. I mean, maybe, maybe there are others I just maybe don't know about. But he's the only one I know about, uh, you know, who actually talks about in terms of the importance in terms of pan-Africanism, in terms of important importance in terms of unified Africa, in terms of, you know, resolving the problems that it's confronted with. So we got a long way to go, Brother Africa. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, you know, it, it, how, how do we get corrupt leaderships to, 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 to grasp the idea, you know, that your freedom is intimately tied up in your relationship with other African states, and not your relationship with Western states? they a very difficult thing to achieve. And, and you know, of course, we got to get, we have to give um, some kudos, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, to uh, Western states have been able to historically assassinate more progressive elements on the African continent. Uh, and installing puppet leadership, uh, so we we have to give them some, we have to acknowledge, you know, their uh, their their achievements in terms of being able to actually eliminate, you know, progressive elements on the continent in terms of political leadership and create a situation where you have the most corrupt vile human beings in positions of power. And uh, of course, one of the things in terms of the, in all for those corrupt vile individuals remain power in Africa they are propped up by you know, military, uh, uh, Western military expenditures. And whether we're talking about weaponry for them or they talk talking about money or technology to spy on the population, uh, clearly these people are willing to do the West bidding. And so therefore, in the context of what's good for Africa, never even comes to question in the minds of many African leaders. Um, the corruption, uh, the corruption among the middle class in Africa, it has to be challenged. And, uh, you know, and that's, that, that in and of itself is going to be a, a different question. Well but, but I think that there's no single African state can challenge the West. It has to be a coordinated effort in terms of doing it. It's not easy, but in order to be free you know uh you you have to you have to take a stand and it's not pretty, but that's the price of being free. That is what Malcolm X said, and that was and that is and that is precisely what has to take place if people ought to be free. Thank
5: you, Brother hockey brother Anthony, one of the other issues that brother and spoke about and shared the need for African unity is we have the new phenomenon, the challenge and the fight and the stumbling block of fighting neocolonialism. Neocolonialism today is one of the biggest hurdles that face Africa and African people. Can you talk about the impact of neocolonialism, what it is, and how does it look, Brother Anthony?
9: Well, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting you raised that issue, Brother Africa, and I concur with all the observations that Brother Hakim made, and I would add that it's a question of political will. For example, the invasion of Libya. Libya was not uh, able to withstand that military onslaught, and not one country in Africa... Uh, came to libya 's aid when it was invaded and uh, that and that uh, illustrates graphically why Africa needs to unify because against uh the weaponry of the capitalist countries uh, not one country in Africa can withstand that kind of attack. I mean, uh, there, uh, before the invasion of Libya, Libya had the highest standard of living of any country in Africa. And now, uh, uh, you know, as a result of the invasion, it's as if it's gone back in time, in a sense, in terms of the way the people are living now. So it, uh, so it not only does, uh, does uh, Africa need a unified army, but also a, a, a Pan Afghanist political party to lead it because it's a question of political will to stand up uh and organize against Africa's enemies. And uh and uh there's not one country in Africa today that has shown a willingness to stand up uh to the uh uh to the onslaught uh, that's being waged by all forms of capitalism worldwide. So we have to get organized, and we have to unify. And that's more important today than ever has been in Africa's history.
5: Thank you, Brother Andrew And Brother Moses, your response to the issue of, he talked about building a continental common market, a market, that can influence and control by African people, continentally speaking, where we can exchange with each other. How important is that as as we talk about building an independent, strong, unified Africa from your perspective?
7: It's certainly, certainly it is. Our uh, political economy of Africa must be organized and uh united on a, on, a on a pan-African, scientific, pan-African socialist, socialist basis. basis. And the political economy, the, political uh, the raw materials of the must, raw be must be under the control of the people of, the people of Africa. Right now they're, right
4: now,
7: they're subject, to, subject the, to the whims and the needs of imperialist states that they're states using the their raw materials to material to improve their economies. Their and so, you know, so, you so, know, you should definitely take organizational unity uh, the ideological unity around pan-africanism and uh that's the, that's, that is the organization is is critical in terms of uh moving Af- africa forward uh uh it cannot be overemphasized and so uh it's a matter of independence and self-determination thank you
5: Brother Moses Brother Haki, Anthony and the rest of the crew when crewman talk about this, I guess we talk about also wall com- walls coming to different forms from a psychological perspective when we talk about creating a narrative they always talk about Africa as being poor but he meant there ain't nothing poor about Africa with well, all those resources and if you're poor why everybody's going there we a large of resources that are coming from. So he is correct. Objectively, scientifically, we gotta get out this misnomer about looking at Africa as being poor. Ain't nothing for about Africa. But he did allude to the African people are exploited. The labor is so cheap, etc. Now Kwame Ture used to have a saying that African people are not poor, but they are poorly organized. In your own words, Brother Haki, talk a little bit about that concept. What does that mean to us? How can we use that to change the narrative psychologically when they talk about Africa? They don't put us as a disadvantage of and as Africa is something that is depleted, something poor, something that needs needs to be pitted.
6: How do you describe something that's very important? The wording is very important. Oh, that's feedback, Brother oh, Africa.
5: Feedback by the yeah, I got you. Go ahead.
6: The wording, the wording is, is extremely important. For instance, in the, in the United States, we often referred to um, uh, uh, African people being slaves. I like to say we were enslaved. I like to say we were enslaved. So that's a difference, a different connotation. So when you, when you characterize Af- Africa as being poor, essentially what you're saying, the people are poor of character, uh, poor of drive, poor of ambition, uh, poor of all those things you need to develop a nation. And so once you internalize that kind of thinking, then it has negative uh, consequences. And so, therefore, we've got to be very really careful in terms of, you know, uh, you know, how we state things. So in that context, it's important that we understand that Africa is, Africa is, a, is a very wealthy country. It's the wealthiest in the world. Uh, even though the people, you know, are, in fact, uh, are suffering, uh, they're poor, not because of some, uh, some, um, some, um, some inability in terms of actually doing it for self, they are poor because the political leaders continue to play a game in which to which plays a game to ensure their enrichment at the expense of the mass of African people, and in the process of of, of, of enriching the African elite, uh, they own they not only uh, contribute to the poverty in Africa, but they underdevelop you know their own economies. So clearly, this so that's the issue that has to be addressed in Africa. But in understanding that, once people come to realization in terms of the objective reality, politically speaking, I think they didn't get a true perspective in terms of what's, what's needed. And you're right, Brother Africa. One of the things that we talk about, you know, um, you know, Africa is a very wealthy, w- w- wealthy country, we're a continent. Uh, one of the things that you keep in mind is that often when these leaders, Western leaders throughout the world, call upon, you know, these, these, these meetings, they always call for African leaders to convene, all of them. They call on African leaders to come to their country to discuss them. Now, if Africa, was in, uh, if Africa was a poor continent, do you think it would warrant that kind of attention? They understand the vastness and richness of Africa, and so therefore, you know, they are content in terms of maintaining a system in which they essentially uh, uh, benefit. Once the masses of African people understand and denot- the, the, the nature of the beast in terms of the exploitation that addiction exists, uh, then they can begin to fight back in terms of, because they have a concrete understanding in terms of you know, uh, how systems are essentially you know, undermining its development, contributing to the poverty you know there in Africa. But I think it's a process, though, but it starts with some leadership. And so the question is, you know, how do we engage the leadership of Africa? How do we get them to recognize uh, you know, that uh, many changes, political changes have to take place in order for Africa to achieve you know, true autonomy? Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Professor Namumba, you know who travel around Africa and making his speeches and um, it was very interesting in terms of the, the demeanor of the people that he's the African leaders and the African military officials that listen to his speeches and, and when you look at them you can see that they're not very very uh, pleased with Dr. Lamoon's presentation in terms of the problems I think of in Africa and so when he talks about in terms of personal responsibility personal political responsibility in terms of bringing about a change uh their, their demeanor gets even more uh uh more uh, more uh, for lack of a better term, even more disenchanted in terms of his, uh, Dr. Lamouma's presentation. So clearly it's a very difficult situation that we're gonna fight with Brother Africa and uh you know but it goes but it's gonna start with leadership. And uh I think uh, to a large extent um uh, you know uh, you know we, we do count on leadership, you know, internally in Africa to bring about the kind of the kind of movements that, that we need in terms of being true to free. But we also can't discount the fact that a lot of this this, this the, 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 the impetus for this movement are going to come from outside of Africa, Africans of the diaspora, in terms as 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 we push in terms of to, to get, you know, Africans internally to address these issues that in terms of colonialism or neocolonialism that that manifests itself on the African continent.
5: Anthony, what do you make of the so ideal? There got to be a intensified struggle for Africans on and off the continent to see themselves as one. Because we fail to win that battle, there would never be no Pan Africanism. Your response to that, brother Anthony? Uh, uh, that
9: is that is true. That is true. And, uh, and we uh, have to we have to uh, uh, commit do a better job of communicating among ourselves regardless of ethnic groups regardless of religion or whatever lines they try to divide us and uh part of the problem is that in a lot of countries where african lives the educational system is not controlled by africans that is something that has to change and that is the root of the of a lot of the ideological problems that we're having. Uh our uh, educational systems in a lot of countries are controlled by uh you know, by outsiders and uh who spread uh, capitalist ideas amongst the people. And that is why neocolonialism is such a major problem at home and in the African diaspora. And uh we have to move to correct that and that can only be corrected through organization. We have to build a political organization from the from the ground up. It can uh uh there were attempts to try to build it uh from the top down. Uh that doesn't work because egos get in the way. And so does greed, so it has to be done uh a bottom it takes a bottom up approach and uh we and uh Africans who share the same set of ideas have to come together and start- uh you know and start uh you know working together as one where we can. And that is why, uh, you know, uh, organizations like the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, and uh, PRPAG, uh, the African Party for the Independence of uh, Guinea, become so important in terms of uh, pushing forward, uh, you know, Pan-Africanism. Because our people need to be organized. That's the only way we can defeat the enemies of Africa and bring about a new paradigm.
5: Is anything you'd like to say on the particularly recording my Kuma panelists before we make our transition. Yes, Scott. What we're going to do is right now, this is Africa on the move. We're going to take a quick revolutionary break when we come back. We're going to talk about our theme today, the challenge of change. There are some articles of interest we've chosen today. We'd like to share them with you, and we'd like to talk about how these events and ideals are taking place, how they are impacting our community, our lives. We'll be right back. You're to Brother Africa and Africa on the Moon.
10: let civil rights talk, man. I wouldn't wanna hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming, it wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative, we have more marriages and see what the damage did. They ain't that bad of bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery Supremacy ago, the extent to keep their history alive I'm saying if these leaders was alive who be on the internet trying to divide and use a hotel hustler Trying to fear people of that low vibe structure Agree to disagree and we ain't got to tear our own down Argue with silence it'll forever be our own down All I want to say is that we giving it away Soul ain't for sale and the devil is your fate Argue with the silence but don't let it steal our fate Fight behind doors but don't ever show our face Cause if mom had Twitter Malcolm with Twitter it be our own people do the trolling be on ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Got some had Twitter And Malcolm had Twitter It be our own people do the trolling just be on ignorance and do the scolding Where we
4: going?
10: Sometimes the key to life you're looking for will Be right in front of you Tried to show my man hidden colors. He said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Henry, you coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right. Your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday. He said, most of it's basic. Million-dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in. 1940 is something I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away, I want to get high today, who got five on my little bundle of temporary, man I want to spread my wings today, welcome back to Africa on the
5: Move. And now I'm going to transition to speaking to our theme tonight, which is the challenge of change. That was a recent article. If you get a chance, take, check out Telesur Magazine on the 28, 2020. Um, the article is titled, China, Key Driver of the Global ac- or the Global Economy from Pandemic. It has a little subtopic in which it states that With the IMF predicting that 60% of the growth in the global economy next year will take place in China. And we're talking about 60% of the global economy taking place next year in China. That's the uh, projection of what's going to take place as we look at the growth of the world economy. 60% of the growth will take place in China. It goes on to say it will be better for the U.S to mend fences with that country. Brother Haki, as we talk about the challenge of change and we look at this article, what did you take for this article? Why would it be better for the U.S. Uh, to take to means and whip with China instead of trying to go to war with China? How would that hurt the people and the rest of the world from your perspective, Brother Haki?
6: Well, I think, Brother Africa, well, I, think so. I think your, your, your I supposition think is, is all wrong. Uh, it's not in U.S. interest uh, to work with China. If it did that, then what that means is that um, imp- U.S. imperialism comes to an end. They're not going to do that. So one of the reasons why China economy is expanding is that it's very, very simple. In China, uh, China simply won't allow the kind of corruption that's allowed in the United States. For instance, you have someone like Jack, Jack Maher, you know, a big businessman, you know what I mean, and making billions and billions of dollars. He's a billionaire. But how that money gets used is determined by the Central Committee. They're not simply allowing him to use that money, you know, to buy up all the assets of the country to control. If you, com- if you compare it to the U.S., uh, that, kind of, that kind of maneuvering is certainly allowed. So you have a billionaire who is simply uses money to buy up all the assets and, and, and implement all kinds of control. And so there was a consequence that, that billionaire in America is not concerned about the interests of the people or the society at large, what he or she is interested in is money in their pockets. And so, therefore, because China won't allow those kind of practices, is, is able to put money into, uh, into a system, which means it, ex, it expands, it, it grows. And that's why when you talk about the 60% of GDP, world GDP coming out of China, is precisely why. It's because China's consistently uh, creating a scenario which says that, you know, you know, the wealth will be spread. And so those, 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 those impulses, you know, to be greedy, uh, to be corrupt, or to not give a damn about the country, the Chinese Central Committee simply won't allow that. In America, it's allowed. And so the consequence of non billionaires to essentially run things, it means it's a drag on the economy. So when the IMF says the U.S. economy is going to contract by negative 4.4%, it's it especially what it's going to do. Now, keep in mind, all the stuff, that we all this wealth that we talk about, it has nothing to do in terms of real wealth, because real wealth comes as a result of actually building and creating things. America doesn't create or build anything. Everything that's produced is produced abroad. Nothing is produced in the United States. All this wealth that you see, all this wealth that they talk about is on paper. It doesn't objectively exist. It exists only on paper. It exists in somebody's computer. And so therefore China, on the other hand, actually builds things and so is able to sell things. So therefore is the economy able to expand. Uh, so clearly we gotta understand that in terms of you know in terms of why, you know, China is so successful on the economic on the economic front. Uh, one of the things is that also, you know, because China is actually, China is growing and it is the number one economy in the world, one of the things the U.S. has been done, which is very, very counterproductive, is they're creating these tariffs and these, 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 uh, to make it difficult for, some tr- to trade. They, um, they also, the, um, they also, uh, broken the supply chain. And so one of the things when we talk about, you know, countries, you know, uh, GDP growing. Uh, you have to have trade. But what the U.S. actually did in order to punish an attempt to slow down China, it, broke, it, 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 it destroyed the supply chain. Not totally destroyed, but it destroyed to the extent that the supplies, you know, coming from, you know, China and to other parts of the world into the U.S. has been, been uh, undermined. And as a consequence of uh, the, 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 the products that actually arrive here, are very, very expensive. So as a consequence over the last three months. So we talk about for food alone. We talk about $3 billion increase. Now, that has a real deleterious impact on the masses of poor folks whose wages continue to fall. And so when you expect to pay more for your food but your salary continues to decline, then that's a problem. But clearly, you know, uh, all these problems that we talk about in the context of America is the direct, direct result of how capitalism is practiced in America. And this is what we have to understand. And so we look at some of the differences in terms of, in terms of China and the United States. Understand the problems in the U.S. are self-inflicted. And and thing I want is to be very clear on something: when people get the little fourteen hundred dollars in terms of so-called stimulus, keep in mind if they really want to, if they really want to stimulate the economy, the one the first thing they would do is a, a, a tax increase on the wealthy. That's the first thing they want to do. Take those funds in terms of investment, infrastructure investment. If they really were concerned, but as it stands, um, most politicians are adamantly against uh, a wealth tax for the wealthy, simply because you know, because the wealthy are the ones who give them money to run for their offices. And so, therefore, they don't bite the hand that feeds them. But as a consequence, the overall U.S. economy continues to decline. But it really, as far as the wealth is concerned, the billionaire class is concerned, they don't care because somebody goes, as soon as this falls, they'll go somewhere else and start all over again. And so, but it's important that but people, uh, people, the poor people, the working people in the society who understand that as this thing declines, understand that poor people, working people, had nothing to do in terms of its decline. It had everything in the world to do in terms of you know government. I mean, a uh, 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 financial policy in America that favors the rich, rich at the expense of everyone else, and so therefore, that is a quintessential difference between China and uh, and uh, and the U.S. So nobody's surprised that China, in fact, economy will improve. And uh, whereas you when you talk about it, they talk about a, a minimum, I think like five point two percent growth in China yearly, and the U.S. We're talking about possibly maybe if, maybe uh, maybe you know. Uh, to maybe 2 to 3% in terms of growth yearly. And, that's, and again, that is not based upon anything concrete. That's based upon these, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of schemes they play in terms of you know, interest rates and, and monetary policy in terms of how much money in circulation, how much money makes making it feasible for wealth people to have access to and all of that. So on paper, it looks like wealth is actually being created. In reality, it's just paperwork. It's just all on a computer screen. So clearly, you know, uh, I think that Brother Africa, um, you know, to answer your question, you know, I I, I think that, uh, you know, um, the bottom line is that the, the U.S. even if it wanted to at this stage of the game cannot uh, do anything in terms of really uh, uh, um, to to work with China. They simply can't. Uh, they're in a fight for their life, and so therefore they're doing everything they can to undermine China. And of course, I mentioned earlier, and I close with this when I talked about the fact that. Uh, you know, when they, when they shipped jobs, started shipping jobs in the 70s and 80s and they shipped jobs closed their out factories in America and shipped them abroad, most of those jobs went to China. Well, it wasn't the Chinese leadership fault in terms of those jobs being shipped to China. The capitalist class in America made a conscious decision that by shipping those jobs to China, they could corrupt Chinese leadership and you have another, another, another system functioning like an American system in which they can collectively, both the U.S. officials and Chinese officials, could reap the benefits by exploiting the Chinese workers. The Chinese, the Chinese leadership said, no, 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 we're not playing that game. We're here to build China. We're here to lift our people out of poverty, and that's what we're going to do. That was a source of contention for the United States. Once they realized they couldn't corrupt China, now China become the enemy. So now they're doing everything they can in terms of undermining China. So to ask them to work with China at this point in the game simply won't happen.
5: Brother Hackey, thank you for your response. And to Brother Anthony, when you read this article, there seems to be a historical uh, continuation of the (laughs) capitalists making the same same error. And the error is this, Brother Anthony. Every time when they can't compete with you economically, they either try to undermine you by raising taxes on your product, or they put a blockade and try to keep you from getting certain supplies, so you can't produce it. And the error is that when you do that to a country, what that does is make a country become more self-sufficient and independent, while at the same time it hurts the population back in the country that's doing the blockade. Your response to that phenomenon, Brother
9: Anthony. Your your point, Brother Africa. Africa. Uh, Uh, um, um, As a matter of fact, this uh, article gives an example of that. In terms of the microchips, uh, because the U.S. used to have a, a monopoly on, on, uh, uh, on, on microchips. And now, because it refused to, uh, to, sell, to the, uh, sell them to, to China, the Chinese are developing the ability to manufacture microchips by themselves. And this is interesting because um, one of the things I think the u s uh uh bourgeoisie miscalculated is the fact that china is uh, uh the Chinese people are organized and highly educated, so they can they can adapt uh to economic changes a lot a, a lot easier than uh that that countries where the people are disorganized and are not as uh you know uh you know uh highly educated and so uh so the Chinese have developed ability to to manufacture uh you know uh their own uh you know my, my microchips and pretty and uh they anticipate that pretty soon they'll be self-sufficient in that, you know, in in that area. So sometimes, so, so, you know, in this case, you see a a case where a a blockade or an embargo worked against uh, uh, the country that perpetrated it. So, uh, you know, I think this is an example of the importance of organization and I think Africans can learn something from uh what China is doing. Because they're organized, they're able to uh do a lot of things for themselves and and they have a vast internal market that they can take advantage of. And uh this shows the possibilities and why, you know, the enemies of Africa keep Africa Africans divided because uh be, because if Africa united and organized this economy in a critical uh you know, manner, uh they would be uh uh they would be a superpower uh uh, uh as well. And uh they would be the richest country in the world, which is which Kwame Ture pointed out many times. So I think this uh, the the lesson in this is that planning and organization are critical uh, to being able to, uh, uh, to 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 sustain oneself and and uh, you know and uh, develop for oneself.
5: First, Brother Moses, I believe you also have Sister Eleanor on the line with us now. for like you respond just to this issue of when you read this article, one of the things come here clear to me is that you always had a few people, the captains, making decisions that are not only going to impact the lives of the folks, but they really don't give a dime about the interests of the, the masses of people. They're only looking out for their own individual well-being. And a lot of times when you're talking about unemployment in this country, it's because they have created unemployment intentionally so they can make more money. So when you read this article, Brother Moses, Sister uh what are some other issues or things that you'd like to share? What are our listening audience that you got from this article, Brother Moses?
7: have led the 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 Chinese people people from uh, from, uh, from, uh, poverty into into a a a modernized society. And, you know, this organization and uh, consciousness cannot be underestimated. You know, the the, uh, organized people with a consciousness, the political consciousness that keeps politics in command of economics, uh is undefeated it's undefeatable and uh and this the the for instance um the political conscience of china allowed the walmart to enter the economy but they were they were um had to be unionized before in order to operate in china and so that was the only unionized walmart in the world and uh and they they uh, reneged and so China kicked them out. Um, but it's important to see, to keep politics in command and that that, you know, a uh, politicized people organized, organized can can, you know, defeat imperialism. The people united will never be defeated. And so, you know, this is the lesson that organization and, and political consciousness is key that we need a, a uh, Bolshevik-style, Leninist-style party that uh, that is conscious of the the whims and uh, tendencies of the ruling class, the capitalist bourgeoisie, and is able to to fight them a tit for tat on on every issue. And so this this is um, a lot easier said than done. But one third of the world was organized and. and uh, and uh move forward the soviet union when it was the soviet union was moving at at a a very progressive and uh uh expansionist uh economy that was producing uh way out surpassing the rest of the world and um you know when they turned from socialism you know it, it raised up nationalism and other capitalist tendencies and they split Split up, uh, but you know we have to we have to organize and recognize that that ideologically, if we stick to dialectical and historical materialism, and uh, and unite, we can defeat imperialism and we can organize society to to do progressive things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you,
5: brother Moses. I don't know all your comments on this article. If you have any? The mic is yours. Call us um,
2: Yes, Mike yours. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I think, uh, well, we've known for a long time that China has had the fastest growing uh, GNP globally. We've known that since the 80s. And China has a couple of things going for it. It's the second largest mass and land mass in terms of a nation. And I think it has the largest population. And um, uh, we also saw the fact, as uh, you all had mentioned, that uh, the capitalists here were so busy trying to uh, do offshore manufacturing until they did, and we've had a a struggle with China for 30 years over copyright infringements and uh, intellectual property. And certainly... um, the one thing the U.S. had going for it was that Intel chip, those uh, those uh, uh, chips. But now, for 30 years, China has been working to develop its own microchip industry. And certainly, with the pandemic and the new deals that is made with Syria, potentially, and other uh, and other nations in Africa as well as Asia, that we could see. Uh, China become uh, uh, more efficient in terms of chips, but where China is really doing something great is in terms of its carbon emissions and working very hard to uh, become carbon neutral by, as the article said, by 2060. But I think that it might uh, have better results than that. I think uh, China's like uh, President Biden. You underestimate, so you make sure you meet your goals. But Biden has talked about uh, work labor and talking about bringing jobs home and and increasing production in the United States. As we saw with that uh, huge bill that he got through Congress, Uh, we saw him, uh, want to increase corporate tax from 21% to 28%. But as you all mentioned, these capitalists have to run for election every, every couple of years of some and every four years for others. And that's not in their best interest. However, I think the voice of the people in the United States is greater than that of, uh, Congress uh, in, in that we carry the vote. Though this is a republic, nonetheless, we vote. And if we can uh, get H.R. 1 or H.R., I think H.R. 4 is off the table, but if we can get H.R. 1 uh, pushed through and stop with these voter suppression tactics that we see going on in Georgia and and potentially Texas and other states that we will the United States will maintain its uh, its uh, interest in the microchip industry and uh, I think we're doing better in terms of organizing labor and I think it's great that we're going to increase the corporate tax from twenty one to twenty eight percent and uh, Hopefully, we'll, with the infrastructure program that deals with health care workers and, as well as bridges and in, in, in industry, we're going to see uh, a consistent and regular growth in the United States of 3%. And it's true China is expected to have a, a greater growth than that. I don't know if it's going to be over 6% this year. I'm not sure. But I, I do believe that uh, and have known since the 80s that, as you all have said, that China has been on the move and with the fastest-growing GNP in the world. Thank you. Uh, Thank
5: you. Okay. With that said, what we're going to do is mm-hmm. we're going to move on. Uh, someone would like to make a comment? As far as this is or well, anything else may have been said for we make a our- move to the next article. Okay, let's move forward. There was another article that relates to the challenge of change that I thought was a an interest, and clearly it's an interest because it deals with the issues that Kwame Crew was just talking about. The new forces of colonization and neocolonialism, and I see this in uh, under the umbrella of For example, there's an article y'all must look at. It's titled, NBA's Basketball Africa League to debut May 16 16th in Rwanda. Now, when we talk about a change, change can be positive and it can be negative. All change is not necessarily a good change. So when we talk about the challenge of change, the question I had when I read this article that i like to post to my panelists is was not if this is good for Africa. When we read this particular article we talking about the NBA talking about creating a basketball league throughout the continent of Africa, but it's controlled by the NBA. Why would it be good for Africa? When you come into a market, a someone else market and controlling that market and indigenous people don't create and control their own market. One of the questions I have is why didn't they do that or try to apply that to China, to Russia, to some of the other countries that have a large population and have an interest in basketball? Is this another game, another tactic that we can see as a form of being neocolonialist? Is this good for Africa? Brother Anthony, I'll let you start off. What you take up this particular uh, um, new business to come to Africa? which is this NBA New
9: Basketball League? Your response, Brother Anthony? I think it's a form, it's of, a, uh, uh, another form uh, of another form of exploitation. It's dressed up, it's dressed to, up. Me, to make look, to seem glamorous and to seem like it's benefiting African people, but really it's another scheme to drain Africa's resources. And uh, capitalists have been doing that for centuries. Uh, draining uh draining uh, uh human resources from Africa. And this is another form of that. In the sense that what 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 uh, what, what you know what what did do mm-hmm. is sort of bind uh you know these teams to exclusive contracts with the NBA so that uh you know so that they can uh th- that that they, that the NBA can strip Africa of its best players to uh to benefit the u s economy primarily non africa and uh this is a concern i have in other words it's as if you have another corporation uh uh you know take, uh, exploiting uh the uh africa's uh you know rather inexpensive labor resources uh to benefit itself and the reason why it has as you point out brother africa that it has not tried to expand to china or to russia is because those people are are, are organized and independent and uh and uh africa unfortunately uh is still uh, suffering still from still suffering. neocolonialist exploitation so it uh it, it you know uh a lot of countries sell their labor to the highest bidder and uh and and uh, and that's what's going on uh you know with this nba deal, NBA deal. and i see it as or another for another source another, another, attempt, source, another, attempt, to another attempt to milk the resources, resources, out, of, resources uh, out of uh africa africa
5: well, oh anthony they got a the basketball league in europe take it back to where they came from europe but i i do agree with you and brother haki i'd like for you to me on this particular um issue the issue of colonization or recolonizing Africa. I'm saying it in the context of this, brother actually I'd like to have your response. Where institutions come from the outside, foreign institutions come from the outside, bring their ideas. Also, they bring their, their attitudes, their behaviors. They, do, they bring all kinds of things that may be alienated, alienated to the practices and the norms of the people. Now if you look real closely the countries that they chosen to have a set up a basketball league in, all those countries have certain relationship to certain vital resources that the u s need and the West need I don't think it's an accident. I'm wondering if we look at the book um what's the book by John stockwell where he called Economic Hitman where he talk about how the West create policy to create institutions to create organizations to be a front group to really do the foreign policy of the U.S. government. Is this another attempt to do that, Brother Haki? That's what I see as. I'd like to have your response, Brother Haki.
6: The, the author John Perkins.
5: Author John
6: Perkins. Um, let yeah. me just respond to something that was said earlier I think I want to dispel because I don't want people to, to think that simply because Biden talking about re, in, reduce, increasing the uh, tax rate among wealthy from 21 to 20 percent Understand that's just jargon that's just rhetorical it means nothing the, mean, the reason why it means nothing is because when you talk about the effective tax rate or the taxes they actually pay keep in mind historically when they up taxes they just increase the amount of loopholes the wealthy have access to so in fact the actual taxes they pay actually will continue to decrease so this notion that they're going to increase over 21 20 percent is just a subterfuge it's designed to deceive you so I don't want anybody to think because he said that that in fact is going to materialize. I just want to get, make that point clear. All right. So, um, second thing. All right. In terms of the basketball in 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 Africa, you know, brother Africa. I, I, simply, I think it it, it 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 achieves two objectives. I think first, uh, it it, it sort of um, hyphens the class divide because what's going to happen? They're going to pay those those athletes a lot of money. So they can garner a lot of attention in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of you know their notoriety, simply by virtue of being an athlete. So people will say you particularly youth, will said, Man, I wanna be like these guys, you blah, 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 blah. And because it's affiliated with the United States it has that much more appeal. So I think that for that reason it's good in terms of, you know, uh getting getting young people, particularly in Africa, to focus on basketball. And I think that leads me to my second point. I think one of the things I think they hope to hope to achieve is that basketball becomes a distraction. In other words, you know, it's a very popular game throughout the world. And so if you can bring it to Africa in terms of basketball and you can highlight these stars, then it creates a distraction. So so people aspirations are to become, you know, a great basketball player. So the issues that, those, those economic issues that negatively impact Africa cease to become issues. And because what's happening, what you're telling people is that you have the capability in terms of making lots of money. All you have to do is work hard you know, uh, become a super athlete, and maybe you too one day can be in the bas- basketball court. So I think it's, I think so. I think it's sort of a, 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 a subterfuge. I think it's all about, you know, uh, endearing people to the game of basketball for the sole purpose, keeping them inundated with this idea in terms of you know basketball greatness, and so as to keep people distracted from what the reality of what's going on. So I think that's the real motivation. The real because motivation. when you stop and think about, you know, you, you're, and you're right. When you start thinking about, you know, uh, people, you know, coming to setting up shop in Africa and bringing their own value system, of course, that's part of the deal. If you bring the your value system, you know, and, uh, and, people, and people's position is that that value system has some, 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 some authenticity simply because it comes out of the U.S., then it has this much more legitimacy in the mind of people. And so, therefore, they embrace whatever you do, they embrace it and want to emulate and be just like that which they see. So I think all this is part of a grand subterfuge to keep people away from the rally in terms of the economic impact in Africa. And I think that is a sole motivation because clearly of all the problems that Africa is confronting, basketball ain't one of them. Basket, I mean, that shouldn't even be a, shouldn't be a concern. You I mean, in terms of all the infrastructure concerns, all the concerns in terms of the health system, all those things that are so, are, are, are so important in terms of development of Africa, You what you can do is shut up basketball in Africa it's very very clear that the motivations are political. It has nothing to do in terms of any, any any concern in terms of you know Africa as a continent. So clearly, you know there are political considerations when we when we look at this whole this whole nonsense in terms of bringing basketball to Africa.
5: Yeah, it's definitely similar the colonial <laughs> coming back to be colonized. Brother Moses, what do you take from this Africa? Share some thoughts with us. What do you think about this basketball league under the direction of the NBA coming to Africa? Is that a good idea for you or not? What do you think? We're talking to Brother Moses. Talk to me.
7: This is uh, an imperialist adventure uh, in, in that sense. Uh, you, know, you know, the capitalists organized, organized and uh, and, uh the, the the productive resources and and then and there's a socialization process that takes place uh, in terms of socialized production and uh, organizing these teams et cetera et cetera and so so you know um the the socialization of of the uh the 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 culture uh, expansion or whatever uh, into into africa uh, is 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 a a a dual aspect Uh, on the one hand is capitalism on the other hand is is uh, a progressive uh, socialization of of the economy in terms of uh, uh, a lot of people getting the jobs and uh, income and uh, a a cultural uh, expansion of activity etc but nevertheless I think I'm I'm torn between uh, if Africa should be able to organize its own lead. Um, that's the the bottom line. But uh, in face of this situation, uh, uh, um, I think you know uh, a lot of people are going to to join in and and uh, and and participate in it. And uh, but the the idea is to get to get. A union, a union, and uh, uh, controlled by the African people themselves in terms of their, their teams, et cetera. And uh, that may that may take place over time, but uh, right now um, it's definitely in that control of, of the NBA and capitalism, and uh, and that's what's going on. Uh, 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 but you know that's but, you know, that, that, society, that society you know moves you know, forward, moves uh, forward um, through through the socialization, through the socialization process. process and um, and, um, and that's where the uh, future lies. Thank you.
5: Thank you, brother Moses. So I don't know your response to the article, what you think? Is it a good idea to bring basketball to Africa under direction well, the direction of the NBA? NBA.
2: Well the, well, the NBA is, uh, is uh, a super, uh, uh, super uh, uh, successful, successful, obviously, domestic successful. business. But what's really they, important they, is really basketball. Important basketball. basketball. Basketball is a is U.S. A sport, US homegrown sport, sport, homegrown sport. And, uh, and, uh, and they uh, have this reach with the indigenous these, people. You know, they were big on balls and uh, the Mayans, as well as other persons up north. But it's a wonderful sport. And um, as uh, the speakers have said, is that uh, the U.S. is it's not producing many goods, but it is doing one thing. It's promoting and selling culture and socialization. Uh, it's socialization. And in terms of the NBA in Africa, we already have NBA players that come from West African countries, but they're privileged. This will give persons on the continent uh, labor an opportunity to for jobs and many sectors through the NBA. So, in terms of ec- ec- the economic good, uh, I think it'll be great. Uh, I understand that the World Health Organization and the um, uh the uh national basketball club and and uh uh the world health organization i've mentioned them and the african center for disease control and prevention uh they they decided to move these games apparently to rwanda rather than senegal they got the, the uh, being in uh dakar senegal so that's, that's unfortunate because uh, the brothers in West Africa, brothers and sisters in West Africa, love basketball. And that's one of the cultural exchanges we have as Pan-Africanist basketball. And so I think the NBA being there uh, has um, uh, some benefits, real benefits for uh, African Laborers and and in time and as time goes on, if basketball is successful with the NBA in Africa, the nations uh, will develop their own leagues and control of their own basketball uh, industry. So I think it's a, a wonderful thing.
5: Okay, panelists, so anybody would like to respond back to? will respond on
9: anything that was said or that we may not covered on this article. Anyone would like to have just, any final thoughts? Yeah, Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. I, I want to add, add, that add that I think that, I think that uh, uh, the NBA expansion uh, the NBA into, into Africa, into Africa into like any uh, multinational, corporate, multinational expansion corporate expansion into Africa, into Africa uh does more uh, harm, does than, more good, harm than good, because, mainly because uh, it, uh, it 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 um, uh, it is a form of entertainment that I think uh, buys people off, makes them more complacent, and uh, does and uh, does more harm than good for Africa. Uh, not that I'm opposed to sports or entertainment but I think it is something that has to be controlled by Africans and uh, in order for it to benefit Africa primarily.
5: Okay,
6: Brother Haki. Yeah, well, I think i got to be careful about attack by stealth. you got, you got feedback, Brother Africa. you African. got feedback, Brother Africa. I think you know one, one of the things you know we talk about assault by st- by stealth. Uh, we got to be very very careful. Uh, you know uh, the kind of um, tactics employed by the West for the for the sole purpose in terms of the underdevelopment of Africa. One of the things when you talk about basketball, uh, and, and inevitably what's going to happen, and I think the system is absolutely correct. Inevitably what's going to happen is they're going to ex- those those programs are going to expand. So pretty soon you're going to have those basketball teams throughout the continent and it becomes a grand distraction. And so all of the things that we should be focusing on, people are going to lose sight of that because what happens is that basketball, given it being exciting as it is, uh, tends to draw people in. And so my concern is that, you know, it's, it's, particularly, it's a strategy that's particularly effective when it comes to young people, and we've got to be very, very concerned about that. And what I'm also surprised about, Brother Africa is that when, when African leaders, the question is why would African leaders allow, you know, basketball, on a grand scale to enter Africa, why isn't someone say that, listen, okay, of all our concerns, basketball certainly ain't one of them. Why do you think that these African leaders allow these these western institutions set up to essentially come to africa set up shop in particularly, when we talk about basketball clearly there there was there was some, there was some un, uh, under the table payments i mean clearly uh so you know but there, but 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 the broader question is that you know what benefits concretely does basketball serve? Africa, I can't think of a senior benefit of having a basketball team. Uh, basketball, even in context of America, what real benefits do they have other than to, than to titillate, to keep people to keep people amused, to keep people uh, to keep people happy, to keep people distracted? What concrete benefits does sports have in terms of you know society? I'm, I I agree with brother Africa. I don't disagree that you know you know sports. I mean sports are fine. I mean if to the to the extent that you know if you just want to release you know some anxiety, some pressure. You know, it's good to have that escape. So sports serve that purpose. But when you talk about in terms of development of a country, you got to ask yourself the question, what the hell is basketball going to do in terms of the development of Africa? What is it going to do? Not a damn thing. On the contrary, what it's going to do is going, it's going to create the conditions in, to ensure, you know, that the, uh, the, the oppression of Africa goes along in a manner in which, you know, is totally, un, you know, to the masses of people. Because they're so distracted with the game of basketball, and you, you, you know, who wanted to become basketball players, that the, the the much larger problems don't get addressed. So I'm very concerned about that. So clearly, you know, setting up basketball in Africa has no, no, has no no tangible benefits in terms of existing in the first place in Africa. But I'm more ups, upset at the fact that African leaders continue to play the stupid game where they allow themselves to essentially be you know, undermined. And uh, corrupted you by Western institutions who don't have Africa's best heart, best uh uh interest at heart.
5: Okay, well, hi, Keith. we'd like to thank everybody for their comments. we will do right now. We'll deal with our last article for the day. As related to the challenge to change, all of these articles are dealing with the concept of the challenge, of change, and I find this one to be really interesting because if. If if you're you're in the audience to this program, please check out the most recent article on March 17 from the Black Agenda Report, Uh, where they talk about this whole question about Hollywood and this um, attitude toward diversity. Now, because of the lack of diversity in Hollywood, the industry is losing $10 billion a year. Now, if we talk about everything that's economically driven, then can one explain why is it this industry is willing to lose that kind of money to maintain the lack of diversity? Uh, Brother Anthony, you started with this article. What can you take from this whole question of how the lack of diversity has contributed to a $10 billion loss of revenue in the Hollywood industry? Well, the... Uh, well,
9: uh, uh, Bear, in mind, uh, bear in
5: mind that
9: Hollywood is Hollywood. controlled by by Zionist forces, and uh I think and I think uh you know uh hollywood's been a been used as a tool for maintaining white supremacy or or, or, or European domination for a while and uh the and uh you know there's certain forces that want to keep it that way, so they're willing to lose that kind of money uh because of uh you know uh, uh chauvinistic, the the chauvinistic interests of uh the uh, uh of u s society particularly the ruling class. And uh, even though uh, even though uh, a, div- a more diverse approach would broaden their audience and uh, and broaden their, broaden their appeal, then uh, you know the uh, the the leadership that controls the filmmaking and television producing industry are not interested in that. And that's why uh you know so uh you know because of these forces, they're willing to suffer that loss since since that at the end of the day it's born by the working class and and uh, and and the poor uh, and unemployed people uh rather than the people that are that are in control of the industry.
5: Brother Hackley, we're talking about a serious challenge for a change. It is known in the Hollywood industry that uh, African people, they have a tendency to produce products where they make more money from it, but yet don't get their fair returns. It's understood that if they invest more in diversity, the industry will make more money, but for some reason they refuse to still capitulate. To changing, so how do we overcome that phenomenon, Brother Hackney?
6: What's your take on this? Well, Brother Africa, yeah, it is very—it's a very, it's a very, difficult, very situation difficult situation to overcome. To overcome. Uh, you got three back. Uh, you got... It's a very difficult situation to overcome. Uh, keep in mind, the relationship between the Hollywood and the intelligence community is a very strong one. It is well documented in terms of our relationship so hollywood in effect has a consensus in terms of making sure that only certain kind of ideas are presented as it relates to african people so this projection of what it is to be african in the society that's a particular script in which hollywood follows when it comes to african african actors and so therefore keep in mind because hollywood is global so keep in mind my only put, presenting certain images and turn certain to the images of African people in, in America, then effectively you can uh, create, you can uh, legitimize that image of black Africans throughout the world, you know, just by virtue of Africans being on the screen. So the question in terms of money, you know, is a very important one because one of the things you are absolutely correct, people often say, well, anything is motivated by money. And I keep trying to tell people, no, 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 it's not. It's not, everything is not money. Sometimes, even you know, there's a lot of principles involved. In the context of of, of of Hollywood, you know, it's it's not about it's not about you know uh it's it's, it's it's not about the money, it's about one being in a position to present movies in a way in which present Zionists in a favorable light, or present the state of the, the regime of Israel in a favorable light. That is their primary focus, and that is what what they do. They don't have a problem in terms of denigrating African people because because that's not that part of their mission. So clearly, this question in terms of money, it takes a takes a takes a, 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 a takes, it takes a side step when it comes to in terms of implementing programs in terms of, of you know uh, which which challenges the kind of the, the views in terms of what it is to be to be an African person in society. Uh, so the question is, so what can we do in terms of resolving that, brother Africa? I wish I wish I had some clue. The bottom line is that you know um, you know unless we are in a position to get people. Conscious Africans in position of power in Hollywood, then nothing's going to change. That's just the core reality. Uh, you know, we can talk about bank, We can talk about boycotting. You know, Hollywood. But the bottom line is that you know, even if they don't sell sell their product in in, in the continent in the U.S., they always can sell their products abroad. So this this whole question around you know uh, you know uh, um, you know uh, you know creating a situation where uh, they don't they can't make lots of money. It's not likely to deter them. So, in event, so I think to answer your question, Brother African, I close with this, but I just think that, you know, uh, you know, the best we can do at this point is try to get Africans, conscious Africans in positions of leadership in Hollywood. Of course, that in itself is going to be difficult, but the only real solution I see is getting Africans in positions of power, you know, to try to change the imagery uh, in terms of how African people are depicted. That's the only thing I see. Otherwise, I don't see anything we can do in terms of impacting them.
5: Brother Moses? Here you have an industry that are willing to sacrifice 10 billion dollars a year to lose it, refusing to uh, make a change, to be more diverse, to have talented actors and producers who can produce products that will bring them more money, but refuse to give them the opportunity. So where do we go from here, Brother Moses? What's your, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think I think you know the fact
7: that um, the Israeli Zionist lobby is so strong um, and, and racist, I think that's that's a part of the situation in in Hollywood. Um, um, we we need organization uh, and consciousness raising, and you know it's going to take a uh, struggle to change things, and uh, the the conservatives uh, don't want to change. And and we have to recognize that and and deal with it. Um, I think yeah, I think the key is, is 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 Israel though. I I really do think that. Thank you.
5: This is Eleanor. they said, "God bless the child that has his own." It seems to me that Hollywood don't want us, don't care about us. It's about time we begin to look at to do for ourselves to create our own create our own vehicle, our own institution, where we can um, create, display, articulate information as it relates to air lacking and have our own so-called Hollywood? Well, well. Your your thoughts? Um, Brother
2: Africa, Africa. Uh, I I just want to say good evening and thank you to everyone. But uh, in terms of Hollywood, It's interesting how Hollywood, as the speakers have so eloquently put, refuses to deal with the reality of American culture and diversity. The United States has really embraced um, creating and bringing in uh, um, Asian Americans, um, uh, Europeans, Americans who have come here and settled in the United States in the last 40 years or longer. However, it is not able to embrace African Americans or Native Americans or indigenous people, the people that have been living here 401 years, uh, for, uh, the Native people that were here when the, everyone else arrived. Hollywood's not able to deal with a scenario that demonstrates or markets African-American indigenous lives as a part of America. That's the diversity that Hollywood is missing out on. I can see, you know, actresses from India, from Bollywood making a great deal of money in America. I can see... Um, they have different shows, different persons, however, there seems to be some gap when it comes to african American culture and um, all other persons that includes um red people and other persons on the on the other hand there was a time in this country when they were what they called race films, And, um, it was a very successful industry when, uh, uh, there were black producers, actors, and, and, uh, producers. And there's a an entire industry, film industry in this country, um, and it was quite successful. How we would go back there, I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. I think what has to happen is Hollywood has to change and celebrate the diversity of this nation to stop allowing African Americans to be an enigma, figure out who we are, community by community, by just respecting and seeing with open eyes, Don't think you have to have someone that knows someone. No, not at all. Embrace this segment of the population. Are we 14% of the population? Well, let's make sure we get 14% of the business in Hollywood because we may be 14% of the population. However, I would wager that in terms of the film industry, the moviegoers, who are they? It's a cultural phenomena for African-Americans, and we're filling up the movie houses. We're buying, uh, we have Netflix on our television. We have Apple. Whoever's producing movies, we're watching them. So it's time now to reexamine America. We've embraced folks and the immigrant experience. Now let's embrace the African-American experience. Thank you. So one other comment comment. is concerning the NBA. NBA. I do think that the NBA going to Africa right now will be an educational force. It'll bring uh, a level of, uh, it'll educate. It will um, bring the, help develop basketball teams throughout Africa. It's true as a distraction. But no, not so much it's a no, distraction so much. as it is a form of entertainment for the working class. And working class people, rich people, everyone, loves. they seem to love basketball. And I think it can be. I think art and sports can be culturally beneficial uh, exchanges. And I think sports, sports, the arts are wonderful cultural exchanges and. And, um, and I think uh, it will bring, bring something good, good to, uh, Africa. to uh, Africa. All
5: right. I hear you. There. We'll be there. Now finish your point, Sister Eleanor. Finish your point. I'm sorry.
2: So, um. So, um so in, in another so to go back, my my only point was that I I, I diverged from the Hollywood, the, that I do think that Hollywood, as I said, needs to deal with the enigma of, uh, that is the African American and the Native people and see how we live, and what what our lives are like, and use it in film and in the media in the 21st century to let us be a part of the Hollywood experience. Um, and at the same time, I was uh, reiterating my viewpoint on the NBA, and that I thought that it was an educational opportunity, educational exchange, and an opportunity to um, for some individuals to have jobs as players, as referees, as, referees, as whatever that it takes to make.
5: A basketball, a basketball game, and I see that as and bringing that some economic good economic to, uh, to the, uh, Africa. Africa. Sister Eleanor, on that point, I would like to acknowledge there are positive and negatives in everything. And I think it becomes a question of which is more dominant, the positive or negative. I don't necessarily see any Western institution coming to Africa um, bringing any kind of education, that would help Africa to become independent, to become self-sufficient, and to become a competitive, competitor towards that interest of domination. I don't see that. That has not been in history. And we definitely have to be very careful about this concept that we call education. Because the most time when we talk about education, we really talk about indoctrination. Uh, we will never have your competitor, your enemy, giving you tools that you can use to compete against them. So, so yeah, I just think we just have to be real careful with that. But anyway, on that note, that's my position, that's my view. On that note, what we're going to do is we're going to pause for the calls. We're going to come back. We're going to get everybody to find their thoughts. You're going to listen to Africa on the Move. We're dealing with the theme tonight, the challenge of change. We'll be right back. between China, economy, and U.S. Um, business interests, or whether we look at the influence of bringing a basketball league from the NBA to Africa, or the idea of Hollywood can make more money and save money. They can keep from losing $10 billion a year if they are willing to be more diverse. But those are challenges for change. We'd like to thank you for listening to this program eleven days on the eleven day, day of April two thousand twenty one. And we'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening. Starting at seven PM Eastern time. You can also go on Blog Talk Radio and listen to us live screen or call in every Sunday evening by dialing one three two three six seven nine zero eight. Four one. So please share us with your friend, your family members, and join us on a weekly basis. So at this point in time, we can close out our program with our our analysts and panelists for today's program in terms of getting our final thoughts. Right now, we start with our brother Moses, and we'd like to have his final thoughts for today's program, brother Moses. The so mic is yours. <laughs>
7: I think the, the summary and conclusion I come to is that we need to be organized. We need we need we need an organization uh, that is uh, capable of fighting for all our interests, or what whatever how minute or how big it may be. And this takes this takes uh, a lot of energy and a lot of dedication. And uh, you know shows like Africa on the Move raise people's consciousness and that and that's good. Uh uh I'm hoping that, that we can get uh I don't know, a higher level of struggle than 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 today uh, uh where people are are conscious that the US of US imperialism and, and and Israeli Zionism and all the all the situation we face and that we focus on politics, the government and and uh and change the government. Uh I don't know, I'm I'm rambling. But I I, I had a good evening and I thank you. Have a good night. Have a
5: Good night, good night to you, Brother Moses. And we thank you. Next we go to Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. The mic is yours.
2: Well, thank you, and thank thank you you, uh, you. for uh, having this show, Brother Africa, and all of the uh, persons who participate weekly. It is an enlightening show, and it does uh, raise consciousness, and and it keeps you abreast of global events and actions. Um, Zionism is certainly a problem. And... um, Many people and the new Christian right in the United States think Zionism is some ancient um, philosophy. It, it came out uh, and effectively. It was developed in Warsaw, Poland. The Zionist movement, and uh, it's been not. It was not only a, a harmful to Jewish people when they were gated into ghettos. But uh, it's, it's the Palestinian people. Our hearts go out to them. Palestine, an ancient land, an independent nation, now a military settler state. And the United States definitely plays a role in the success of the occupation of Palestine and the development of the nation state, military state, Israel. Now Hollywood, now Hollywood and its failure, and failure. to deal with Fail. domestic culture and to recognize African Americans and other minorities, national minorities. It's it's an outrage and it's so shocking when we can look at television and see Korean people, Vietnamese people uh indian people or many different cultural backgrounds but we still don't see african-american presence as something that is really viable in hollywood so hopefully uh as uh you had suggested that there will be more producers more filmmakers um that we will make the arts viable for the African American community so that our youth will want to go into the performing arts as well as the plastic arts and uh we'll see some type of artistic uh, renaissance uh, we've had many as african-american nation um, we've, had, uh, the we've had the Motown renaissance the Harlem renaissance maybe we have the art now 21st century renaissance so thank you so much um, we'll see what happens with the NBA uh, they are many private owners and it is a league I don't quite see the NBA like I see Swiss bankers and uh, these uh, multinational corporations, but I may be wrong, and I'm learning all the time, but I know that the um, I just feel strongly the immediate effect it would be educational and uh, uh, economically vibrant. But thank you all and I will uh, try to learn more and and to have more to share with you in a more positive way in the future. And thank you for this wonderful show. Good evening. And and happy Easter. And
5: And same to you, and we thank you, sister, for your contribution to today's program. Next we go to Brother Haki, your final thoughts for the night, Brother Haki.
6: Yeah. Yeah. yeah in reference in reference to uh this, this hollywood saga the things that mitigate against us creating our own are just just, just to give people a brief history because it's important to understand that we work in the context of the system i think the difficulty for a lot of our is understanding that we work in the context of a system and we got to put aside all the good feelings that we have in terms of what we like to see and realize the hard reality is you know what it is uh you know so in working the context of the system we can't deny that the system is um, across the board uh, diametrically opposed to the interests of African people. You have to understand that clearly, but in reference to Hollywood, one of the things that if you think back to Bill Cosby, he had three billion dollars to buy nBC He was rebuffed they they didn't, didn't want his money. they weren't going to sell him sell him money, that, that station to that network to him, simply because the color of his skin uh Byron Allen uh was ho- contracted to produce some programs on believe Viacom. Uh, they were naked on that promise. Uh, the concern was that Brian might innovate some real program which tends to enlighten and truly inform people. And uh, the corporate structure simply wasn't going to have that. And thirdly, the um, the um, the um, the advertisers. Uh, you know, without without the support for advertisers, it's very difficult to keep programs on the air because you got to pay the, the the talent, you have to pay the production workers, you have to pay all these people. And so the advertising dollars are extremely important. One of the ways in which the advertisers prevents certain uh, programs from being aired is they simply don't support them. So, the, so if we're talking about the empowerment of African people and presenting positive African programming, then you best believe that corporate America does not see that in their interest. And so those are the things that mitigate against us creating our own. Of course, it's always possible to create our own, but that would entail the billion African billionaires coming together, and, and, and seeking funding sources from around the world, not just in America, because clearly, if you depend on American sources for your funding, particular advertising dollars, then you're not going to succeed. Uh, look at Oprah Winfrey uh, Network. Uh, you know, just just getting advertising is a very difficult thing for her to do. So, clearly, uh, brother Africa, you know, um, you know, we're working to contact the system, and, and always, you know, uh, I, I think um, let me just point this on our close. I think also when I talk when I talk about we work in the context of the system. When I talk about the uh, the disparity between the have and have nots, we must understand clearly that this is not a fluke. It's not a accident. It's by design. Uh, when we talk about interest and we talk about monetary policy, the amount of money in circulation. When we talk about uh, we talk about Federal Reserve in terms of buying debt, all of this stuff leads toward the, the enrichment of a few people. So we got one percent of the population enjoying all the wealth of the society with an overwhelming number of people that have access to no wealth. Now, the problem is that, I, and I keep trying to get people to understand, what do you think they're going to do with all these people who are superfluous, who don't have any money? You can't contribute to a capitalist economy. You have no money. In the context of capitalism, nothing matters but money. There's no humanity. There's morality. There's no justice. None of that stuff exists in the context of capitalism. So let's stop deceiving ourselves to believing that if we only believe, you know, things are better, the things are okay, the things are going to be okay. It simply doesn't work that way. So if we don't come to realization what the hell is really going on, then by the time the things by the time the proverbial stuff hits the fan, I don't know what our people are going to do. Clearly, you know, I'm not saying that to, to frighten anybody, I'm saying that out of sincerity, because the situation is getting critical. And if you take a look at the economics of the society and the kind of stuff that's going on behind the scene which the media doesn't talk about, it'll scare the hell out of you. In event, brother, having said that, Brother Africa, I'm gonna close and always I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Because that is key in terms of understanding just where we are in society and what we must do in terms of um, for showing our longevity in the society. And have a help. You, have a good night, you have a good night, brother Africa.
5: You say, brother We Thank you for your contribution to today's program. And next we go to brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night.
9: Yes, my final thoughts for the night is uh, is that we must organize it is critically important that Africans join a political organization that is working for people's liberation. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. And our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And we push for this objective because it is the only objective that will solve all the problems that Africans throughout the world are facing. And you can learn more about uh, our objective by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, thank you for having me, Brother Africa, and uh, revolutionary greetings to you and the fellow panelists on the program tonight, as well as the listening audience.
5: And we thank you, Brother Africa, as well, for your contribution to today's program. We'd like to thank all of our participants and our listening audience and our supporters and friends for supporting Africa on the Move. And if you have not signed up and have not joined as a friend of Africa on the Move, and supporter, you can do that by emailing us at Africa on the Move a Gmail. We can tell you how you can do that. Email us and we give you the information on how you can become a supporting friend of Africa on the Move. We need your support and we'd like for you to remember that this program is for you and we'll be on every Sunday for seven p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Please spread the word and remember that when we look at our history, one of the arrows we don't want to continue to make, and that error is being a Buffalo Soldier. We do not want to continue to be used as pawns to fight other people's battles. So on that note, we we'll see you next week, and we will remind you like Brother Bob did when he wrote the song called Buffalo Soldier. This one is for you. This has been Africa on the move with Brother Africa.